I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, two writers out of Los Angeles, Ryan Gattis and his latest novel, Safe, and then What We Lose, the debut novel from Zinzi Clemens. Ryan Gattis is the author of Kung Fu and All Involved, which won the American Library Association's Alex Award and the Lira Award for Noir of the Year in France. Gattis lives and writes in Los Angeles, where he is a member of the street art crew Uglar Works and a founding board member of 1888, a Southern California literary arts non-profit. And Ryan is now the author of Safe, which we're going to be talking about today, his new novel. Ryan, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks. So tell us what Safe is about. Safe is about a safecracker by trade in 2008 who decides that although he works freelance for the FBI and the DEA and various organizations in Los Angeles, that he needs to actually steal from some of these safes that he's used to cracking for the authorities. We find out why later, but it being in 2008, I think is is important because that's when the stock market crashed. And it's definitely a guiding force in the book. I think I've been referring to it every now and again as Robin Hood Noir. And Safe has, I guess, it has a double meaning as well because the characters, the main, we'll talk about. There's there's two main protagonists, two narrators, and they're both concerned with the idea of safety. Absolutely. And I don't mean you know wearing a, a fluorescent vest, or wearing <laughs> that thing, but you know themselves and their families and their loved ones being Absolutely. safe. Yeah, safety. I think in the most grievous sense of the word, you know, personal safety, mm-hmm. bodily safety, life or death. You know, if you will. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. It's. It was fun, fun to play with the word and, and, and the definitions of it and the implications of it, because I think that was bigger and broader and stronger than just writing about a metal box that you keep valuables in. We'll talk about the two, the two narrators. Uh, first of all, if I, before we talk about the two narrators, why two? Why split it? Why split the story between the two people? Sure. I think it's because there's a very elemental story structure connected to thrillers in general. Uh, in that you have the hunter and the hunted. It seems, I think, very easy and, and straightforward. And it's, it was really fun to tell this story through both perspectives as they get closer and closer to colliding. So Ricky, first of all, Ricky Mendoza Jr., which isn't actually his real name. No, it's not. Um, and he's known <laughs> as Ghost, so henceforth in this interview he'll be known as Ghost. Uh, who is he? I mean, he's only what he'll tell us he is. 
right? He, he doesn't talk much about his past. What we do know is he's a safe cracker. He's extremely skilled. He works for the highest level law enforcement agencies possible. And he's also an ex-addict. He's also someone who grew up in a gang neighborhood in Los Angeles and, and just through really the sheer luck of meeting someone and falling in love when he had cancer when he was younger, was he able to meet a mentor, essentially, who would actually teach him safe cracking and give him a way out in a whole new life. And he also meets Rose, who tells us something about Rose. This is, the, this is the first book I think that I've read that has a mixtape. Uh, really? Yes, I think oh, so. Wow. I'm sure there are more. <laughs> I'm not pioneering any new ground, but, uh, but you're very kind. Um, Rose is someone that Ghost met, I think, when he was about 17. Uh, met in the cancer ward at St. Francis, uh, which is in Linwood. It's a city I write about a lot in South Central Los Angeles. I spend a lot of time there. And she managed the best she could, but passed away. Yet what she was able to do is make this mixtape for Ghost and, and find a way perhaps to guide him emotionally after she was gone. And it, it becomes almost uh, a mantra for his life. It is his prized possession. I mean, when he leaves his car, he plays it all the time. When he leaves his car, he physically takes the tape with him every time. And I don't know, I think there's, at least for me, I think she, she was really the emotional grounding that he needed. And he thinks about her every day. He doesn't want to disappoint her, even though he hasn't seen her in many many years and frank her father is the the safe cracker that teaches him the trade absolutely uh, he's with him for you know over, over a decade mm. but frank has no idea that ghost and and rose knew each other yeah it was always ghost's intention never to reveal how they met and i think there's something heroic about that personally so our second narrator, Rudy Reyes, or Glasses, as he's, as he's known in the book, and again, we'll henceforth in this, uh, in this interview, who is he? Oh, Glasses is a really <laughs> bad dude. You know, he, he um, you know, the way he tells it when, when he was young in his teenage years, he was beaten by the sheriffs and had, had a pretty grievous injury to an eye socket, which necessitated uh, wearing a very thick lens on one side of his glasses for the rest of his life and looking a bit odd. And, and, and he also was sent to jail for that um, because he was actually committing a crime when they happened to catch him and beat him. But the way he says it, hey, you know, I, I was a wannabe gangster before, but, you know, after that happened to me, after I went to jail, I was a real one. And he, he keeps doing that. He, by the time we meet him, he's in his mid-30s. He has a wife and a very young baby. And his priorities have shifted. His priorities have changed. What was once all about the gang and the criminal life and, and, and trying to keep that moving forward for his boss, essentially, he really has to reevaluate his life and see what he wants. And it actually means he starts making some really difficult decisions about whether or not he's going to be loyal. And Rooster, his boss... It's also a family man. They're both in this sort of similar position, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Rooster has a, a young daughter. Uh, she's a teenager. And... Yeah, he does everything he can for her. And I, I think one of the things I'm, I'm so lucky to have, I suppose, in that I spend a lot of time with former gang members, especially in South Central, especially in Linwood, is that I understand what role family plays. And I understand that, you know, these types of things don't necessarily occur in a vacuum. <laughs> I think sometimes Hollywood can trick us into thinking that the acts of violence or acts of crime, you know, only ever affect loners. And that's just not how it is in the real world. It affects families and friends. And I think it's perhaps a truer story, a truer picture of that life. 
Now you say glasses is he's a bad dude. He's also one of your one of your two narrators, and he's. I mean, I really wanted him to succeed. Did as you? Well. He's, well, he's, yes. Yeah, <laughs> right on, Neil. Him, right I found on. Him very, very compulsive, and yeah, and I didn't know whether that was your intention. One hundred percent. Of course. I mean, you never know. <laughs> as an author, you hope. <laughs> you hope that. You know, if you portray characters in the most three-dimensional mm-hmm. uh, human way you can, that readers can't help but care. And I think that w- the, the case with this one was, you know, can I get readers to care? Like, that was actually a challenge for me. You know, I thought, here's a guy who's not entirely unlikable, you know, and, and he has good reasons for living and doing what he does, even though he does bad things. But I think in some ways, his journey through the book, he has slightly fewer chapters than Ghost does. You know, it's not 50-50 split. His journey is essentially to grow a conscience and then essentially act on it. You know, that moment of truth has to come at the end of the book and he has to decide what he's going to do. And I think for me, that was such a wonderful challenge. And, I, and the fact that you cared and, and you wanted him to succeed, man, that, that means a lot to me. That's awesome. I want to talk a bit more about real-life gangs as we go on, but just before I forget, you mentioned Rooster's daughter, and Rooster's daughter is deaf. Mm -hmm. And so, consequently, the gang have adopted American Sign Language Mm -hmm. as a way of of doing business. Was that a thing? Is that something (laughs) I can neither confirm nor deny (laughs) that, sir. Uh, here's, Here's what I can say. It's used in the book as characters have discussions over the phone. It insulates more higher up members from having their voices appear on a conversation or on a transcript that might be submitted at a trial. So it's effectively immunizing them from prosecution. Have I heard rumors about such things? Yes, I have. (laughs) <laughs> that that's really all I can tell you. And then and then I ran with it, you know, but it was its own really interesting technical challenge. And because I don't have any deaf family members, I thought it was really important to make sure I did it the right way. You know, I taught at Chapman University in Southern California for 10 years doing English lit, creative writing, oral storytelling, things of that nature. And I taught a number of deaf students, but teaching someone and dealing with translators is one thing, trying to represent it appropriately and respectfully in a textual form is is another thing entirely. So I reached out to a a good friend of mine and a truly amazing writer, Sarah Novich, uh, who wrote Girl at War, which is a brilliant book, and she's deaf. And so she really gave me some awesome pointers. Uh, She read a few sections and, and I think really helped me make sure it was respectful, appropriate, on point, and at least from my point of view, even scarier, like even more real, if you will. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to, to Ryan Gattis and we're talking about his latest novel, Safe. And I said, right, I want to go on to talk about the gangs a little bit, but mm. LA first of all. I mean, obviously you live there, but 
you know, also we're familiar with LA from, you know, Hollywood's there and a million films are set there. What is it about LA that you wanted to write about? What, what's, because mm. obviously your, your, your previous novel all involved is set in LA as well. What is it about the city that makes you want to write about it? I think in some ways... Uh, the answer's in the question. You know, I, I think Los Angeles is probably the most photographed city on earth and more than likely the least understood. I think there are certain perceptions that people have that, that are not wrong, but they're based on how Hollywood represents it. And the fact of the matter is Los Angeles as a county and, and, and as a city is so much more diverse and historic and teeming with, with just pockets of individual cultures and subcultures. I, I mean, it, it really is a whole world in, you know, 500 square miles. It's really something else. And as far as answering kind of the, the second half of that question, I think it shows me, you know, the, the, one of the things that I, that I try to explain to people sometimes is that, you know, pretty much everywhere I've ever been in my life, if I tell someone what happened to me when I was 17, when I was hit in such a way that it tore my nose out, uh, the two facial reconstructive surgeries that followed, uh, the year and change of losing all taste and smell. You know, I'd say, I, I tell just about anybody that story anywhere else, and I get a bit of sympathy, I get a bit of pity, or a blank look. But in Linwood, I got empathy. You know, I was, I was talking to people who'd been stabbed, who'd been shot, who'd been stabbed and shot, and they had incredibly specific questions for me that I knew the, the way they were asking about my surgeries or my medication or consultations that this was also someone who was fluent in the language of, of pain, of physical pain. And, and what I found, I think, is kind of a spiritual home and, and an opportunity to really connect with people in a way that, that I hadn't been able to before. And, and I'd like to think that that just powers right into my writing and, and allows me to help characterize, you know, a very specific criminal subculture that really doesn't talk to anybody. They have a code of silence. So it's a very special and unique gift. And, and, and I just try to respect that and, and just write the best stories I possibly can from that angle. You obviously can't say too much about it, but tell us something about the, the structure of those sort of gangs, who they are. I mean, the mm. book is set in 2008. Um, and again, you've mentioned why, and I want to talk a little bit more detail about that in a minute. But um in 2008, what was the gang structure like? <laughs> um, I think maybe the easiest way to answer this question is, is to tell you that 1992, where All Involved is set, the six days of the L.A. riots, was very much a Wild West scenario because you had estimates conflict, but we're looking at roughly 110 to 150,000 gang members in Los Angeles County. And you're talking about maybe 8,000 law enforcement agents, completely outnumbered completely outgunned. In 2008, because of what happened with the riots, among other things, you're looking at an almost total evolution of that system. It's no longer about street gangs. It's no longer about drive-by shootings. We don't hear about those anymore. Uh, they do exist, a few every now and again, but not to the level they were. I think in many ways, there's just been an evolution into more of a mafia system where it's far more about business. It's about keeping it out of the street. It's not about wearing colors anymore. It's not about wearing a certain uniform. It's not about getting tattooed and signifying anything. It's only a professional means of making a living. It just happens to be in a criminal sphere. And I think that to me is, is scarier. <laughs> but, you know, I get asked all the time, why is LA so much safer now? Well, it is and it isn't. It's safer for bystanders, but is it safer in, in every room? No, of course not. And so, yeah, so now, I mean, this book's set in 2008. We're nearly a decade later now. Mm. So how have things evolved since then? 
that's actually something I can't talk about. And I'll tell you why. Because when I first sat down to talk with some people about All Involved, and you know, I ended up giving that TED Talk about sitting down with the guy <laughs> in Linwood. And like the second or third meeting after that, he made it really clear that I could never write about how things are now. In fact, 2008 was pushing it. <laughs> we were having some conversations about it. <laughs> Thankfully, there, there was some relenting there <laughs> on, on his part. Otherwise, I wouldn't have written it. But it's, I, I think that's mainly because tradecraft has evolved, you know, that there are a lot of different ways to deal with digital items and digital surveillance and things of that nature that some folks whom I speak to would just rather not have that information out there, even in a fictional context. And, and I have to respect that. And indeed, we're just at the beginning of that in this book, aren't we? Because mm -hmm. they, you know, they're putting their mobile phones into bags with magnets because yeah. they think that's going to yeah. do something. Um, so 2008, okay, so you've basically just explained one of the reasons why it's uh, set in that year. Yes, sir. Because that's what you could get away with. <laughs> indeed. Um, but also, as you, as you mentioned, it's also the year of the financial crash. And mm. that actually, particularly the housing crisis, plays a part in the story. Tell us again what happened with the housing crisis. Sure. My gosh. Uh, I'll tell you this. There are people far smarter than me <laughs> who are better able to compartmentalize it. But, but from my point of view, I can tell you that an awful lot of money was being loaned to folks who maybe shouldn't have been loaned to at extortionate interest rates. And when financial groups like Bear Stearns made terrible bets on real estate, basically packaging good loans with terrible loans that were bound to default to the point that they didn't even know which was which, the whole system started to unravel. And unfortunately, that meant an awful lot of people started losing their homes, even people who had who had refinanced, you know, at one point even paid off their houses, but maybe they took money out against it in order to do one thing or another. It is just terribly sad. And I think it, it hit LA County pretty hard. It hit the United States really hard. Uh, and, and I wanted to find an interesting way into that. And I guess this is how I get around to this, this Robin Hood idea of, of someone trying to take in order to benefit others. And you mentioned, obviously, All Involved, your, your previous novel, which is 92, mm. those riots. And then, obviously, this financial crash happens in in two thousand eight. I guess, like you know, at a, I mean, again, it's a, it's it's a, it's a number of years later, but presumably, it stops any sort of recovery that might have been happening. The the riots do actually, the legacy of the riots appears in appears in this in this story as well in in, in a in a small way. But even still, now today, what is still the the legacy of those days in? In Los Angeles, and especially, I suppose we can also talk about, you know, what the riots were about. You know, the riots obviously started mm. because of, you know, the way that the law enforcement was was behaving. And it's so complicated. Yeah. I mean, you've asked an amazing question. I don't know that I can soundbite it for you. <laughs> I like we would have to do a whole new podcast. Uh, but but I'll say this, you know, just just to kind of shrink it down as much as possible. The legacy is most people understanding there's a massive need for communication. There was a segregation of communication that occurred where, you know, Korean Americans weren't having profitable dialogues with African Americans. Um, you know, that, that was one of the key spark points within neighborhoods, within what happened in Koreatown. But the legacy now, oh man, I think there are a lot of emotional scars. To this day, I can walk, you know, street and if I, if I meet somebody I know has, has lived in LA forever or who basically says as much, I'll always ask like, hey, where were you during the riots? What was going on? Everybody has those stories. Like it's, it's really 
very much in the fabric of Los Angeles. We always remember. I mean, it, it was recently uh, mentioned in the LA Times that over 50% of people in LA think it could happen again. Absolutely. So that that will tell you, I think, the kind of role it plays in the psyche mm-hmm. of the city and in the citizens of the city. But at the same time, there have been some benefits of sorts in that, you know, so much burn, it created an opportunity for regrowth and regeneration. I mean, Koreatown has had some really amazing new things built there. And it's tough. That's a double-edged sword. You have elements of gentrification and people who've lived there for years being pushed out. But you also have ways of of getting more people jobs. And, and, you know, so it's, again, this incredibly complicated thing. When you have that many moving parts, when you have that many human beings involved, it's never going to be easy. It's never going to be simple. But I think it's just something that continues to be a guide as, as L.A. moves forward into the future. Just one more thing for me there. Can you tell us something about Ugla Works? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, it's a crew, uh, gentlemen, just amazing artists. We mainly do murals. Uh, that's initially how I met them. Uh, they grew up doing graffiti all over L.A. County. Uh, now we work for the city. Uh, we do a number of uh, city and county projects. Our latest project is actually in Linwood, and we've been working in concert with the Linwood Union Gallery, which is the first art gallery in Linwood. I mean, we're so proud to be working with them, and we've got students from Fireball High School and Linwood High School um, from both art programs painting a mural, and they basically, the students who painted it basically get to use that as CV material. They can actually go out and get jobs with having done the work, and you know, something like that just makes us so proud and happy, and uh, we're, we're hopefully going to keep doing that work. Brilliant. So, Ryan, just to finish it off, can I get you to read a little bit of Say For It? <laughs> you can. Uh, it might be rough. Uh, <laughs> I've actually never read it out loud yet, so this is the first place this happens. I'm this a practice. <laughs> this is from Chapter 7, and the narrator is Glasses. There's always that one story. The warning story that happened to somebody that everybody knows and it keeps other fools from getting the smart idea of stealing. For stuff like this, it all comes down to this fool named Kuko. Everybody knows Kuko now. He's cautionary. A super special example. What happened was, he used to work for a Southgate crew. Back in the day, he ran a house for them. First it was for pimping girls, but then he moved up to a little spot on the edge of Cudahy and it was mostly drugs but some guns too. So this fool Kuko... He gets it in his head one day to rob the safe after everybody's put their money in the pot. He thinks he'll do it when everybody's gone. This is how Kuko got to be the reason we have to sit people on families and girlfriends now. You know, as insurance, until everything's settled. So it gets late, and Kuko's only there with one other little fool that he sends out for food, which is never how it should go down, but the little one don't know any better, so he goes. After that, it's just Kuko and no combination for the safe since you can't be leaving people around it that know how to open it. So this dumbass, he drives a forklift that he'd been hiding down the block into the garage and he picks the safe up and he puts it in a truck he had stashed from before. I don't even remember how much was in that safe. Maybe 100 G's, not more than 120, low numbers, nowhere near what we put in now. Anyway, this fool gets in his truck and drives it over to his girlfriend's spot and they decide to celebrate there. Just real quick, you know, a little bit of perico for heisting it right. Never mind that he hadn't opened anything. Hasn't even gotten anything real in his hands yet. Or they didn't even tie his loose strings up. Back at the spot, the little homie walks into an empty house holding a bag of food. Nobody's there. Not in the kitchen. Not in the back room. Definitely not in the garage. He saw all the money go into the safe. So he knows something bad happened, but he don't know it's Kuko that did it. For all he can tell, somebody rolled in kidnapped Kuko, and took the safe. So he makes a call. That little homie was Hector. 
the smoker outside, the one with the gut. Being quick for calling got him a good promotion for a while, too, before he got deported back to Mexico anyway. Like lightning, some hood detectives from various cliques swoop down to see what's up. Any gang that put money in that safe sent somebody. They start looking around, too. The guy from Bellflower notices how there must have been a big truck parked out back in the alley from the tire tracks and some dust. What was supposed to be tactical. The garage facing the alley and making it easy to roll up and load or empty the safe and go quick got shown as a big weakness right then. Especially when there's an abandoned forklift sitting right there, too. Neighbors get asked about a truck after that, and somebody's seen one, a moving truck. Word goes out. Everybody tells everybody to be on the lookout. What the first stop is after that is Kuko's girl's house she shares with her cousin. There's a truck there, fitting the description, and it's locked, too, so some homies show up with some snippers and get that lock off, and the truck gets opened, and there's a safe in it. Our safe. With our money. So those same homies go in the house by the back door, then. It's locked. But that's nothing to people that want in. And they come through, too, four of them, and they find Kuko in his girl's bed since everything ended up getting bigger than one little celebration, but he's sorry. He's crazy sorry. He was just, like, messing with us, exposing a security problem. Yeah, and it's not like he opened it, not like he could have, so it's all good, right? He got told to shut up. The girl got told if she wanted to live, if she wanted her cousin to live, she had to go into that gross-ass kitchen nobody ever cleaned and get the biggest knife she had in there to cut his throat up. Kuko's face right then? People say it was like he died a death right there looking in her eyes, knowing she'd do it to him. Probably this is why it's not a good idea to be with a girl that hustles. A girl that knows odds. A girl that survives by nature. She'll do you if she has to. And she did, too. Of course she did. She got up, went to the kitchen, came back with a knife. When you hear the story get retold, it's a butcher knife. Some six-inch, super-sharp thing you can buy from TV. Man, it wasn't. It was a small little steak knife. Four inches, if that. One of those thin ones with a black handle was all she had in the spot. Serrated edge. With the tip broken off. Wasn't even clean. I mean, Kuko tried to run first, but he got pinned down. A knee on the back of the skull will do that to you. And she went into him. She didn't look, but she stabbed him up. Did it until it bent and broke that little blade. Right there on the floor. On the raggedy brown carpet with cigarette burns in it and a patch that turned yellow from bleach put on it years ago. She got beat after that. Choked. Not just to do it, but to give her a story for the sheriffs. She did time for sorting out Kuko. Voluntary manslaughter. No contest. Mitigating circumstances being that she was a domestic abuse victim and all. She got time served, plus her sentence reduced to one year at Sybil Brand. Got out in eight months, right before they closed it down to earthquake damage. She did that time right. Kept her mouth shut. Never said nothing to nobody. Now she's back in Linwood, working four days a week at a Paisas on Long Beach. She has a kid. They both get taken care of. She's doing real good. Staying clean. I should know. I still roll through. I still say what's up to her. Neither one of us ever mentions that I was in the room. That I had to wash all of it. Or that I was the one that told her she had to do it. We'll both be taking that weight to our graves. So I've been talking to, to Ryan Gattis. We've been talking about his latest novel, Safe, which is out now from Picador Books. Ryan, thank you so much for coming in and telling me about it. Oh, thanks, Neil. It was awesome.
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Ian Sinclair. Go and read some great new journalism and explore the interview archive at littleatoms.com. Zinzi Clemens was raised in Philadelphia by a South African mother and an American father. Her writing has appeared in Zoetrope, All Story, The Paris Review Daily, Transition and Elsewhere. And she is a co-founder and former publisher of Apogee Journal and a contributing editor to Literary Hub. She lives in Los Angeles and teaches at the Colborne Conservatory and Occidental College. And What We Lose, Zinzi's first novel we're going to talk about today. So Zinzi, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you, I'm glad to be here. So how would you describe what we lose? Uh, it certainly takes a little while. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to, to kind of do it in one sentence, but I think the, the simplest description I've arrived at is um, that it is about a young woman who um, is dealing with the death of her mother in light of her life moving forward and her forming her own family. And the book is about her reflections on that loss and um, how it impacts her identity. So this is Thandi. She's your protagonist in this book. Tell us something about Thandi. Who is she? She is the daughter of a South African woman and an American man, uh, much like myself. And she, over the course of the book, we kind of see her grow up. And part of that growing up is, um, you know, again, kind of dealing with the loss of her mother in the past. Um, she is constantly navigating and trying to, to figure out where she belongs in the world. And I'd say that um, that's sort of her defining struggle, at least in, in this book. And she grows up uh, sort of between many different worlds and um, sees herself as an outsider and is just looking for a place to fit in. And so she's South African mother, American father. Mm -hmm. She's also quite light-skinned. To also mm -hmm. begin in, when she's at school, a classmate describes her as not really black. Mm -hmm. um, tell us something about this this identity of her not fitting in between both worlds? Mm -hmm. Well, 
it actually it occurs on many levels. So you know the fact that her complexion is perhaps what we might may not think about when we think about an African American person. Uh, in this case, she is African American. That's just one facet of her identity that sort of doesn't fit. So actually, um, the passage that you mentioned, where the girl uh, says that she's not really black, that has meaning on a couple different levels. So physically, it's that's one of them. Um, but I think most powerfully, probably for people who have had a similar experience, um, it's about not fitting into a cultural idea of what Mm -hmm. a black person is like. And really, you know, statements like that are really meant to reflect more on the people who say them, Mm -hmm. right? Because those are the people with ideas um, that are restrictive. Tandi is just being herself. And you kind of see that in different ways. It happens in different ways throughout the book. But she's the kind of character who uh, sort of internalizes things and thinks about them and uh, observes how other people act in response to her. And so um, that's why a lot of the book is internal, because she's trying to figure out what she believes and what she doesn't and who she actually is in relation to um, what other people think she is. Now, you've just described... Sandy in terms of her position, what she looks like, etc. But you're also describing yourself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that goes a lot further in terms of, you know, the, the roles of the mother and the father in the in the book. And I suppose all the way through this interview, we're going to be talking about various aspects that could cover both Fandy and yourself. So let's talk about to what extent the book is. Because, first of all, it reads like a memoir anyway, because... Mm-hmm. You know, she's put there's photographs in it, there's diagrams and things. It's fragmentary in a way that it's almost like a diary, but we'll, we'll sort of get on to why that might be later on because that sort of mirrors the sort of experience of, of grief in its fragmentation. But mm-hmm. to what extent is this book, I don't want to say autobiographical, but how much of you is in it? Um, You know, I... <sighs> that is a question that I sort of answer differently almost every time it's asked um, and it's it's asked frequently and it's because I it, there's not a simple answer to mm-hmm. it um, so there are autobiographical elements I think my identity does show up in it although it doesn't completely represent my identity and I think that's important for people to keep mm. in mind um, there are important departures um, one of which is in in my life uh, I actually, both sides of my family are immigrant, and I don't talk about that other identity in the book. That's not a part of the narrator. A lot of the things that happened to the narrator did not happen to me. But I think, you know, also when we when we talk about fiction, I think that we have to be kind of careful to analyze it sort of as it mm-hmm. is on the page. So I try to, you know, kind of emphasize that where I end and Tani begins is almost... Besides the point, I think on a craft level, the stories that really appeal to me are the ones that feel raw and real. Um, And so when I was writing the story, I think the most important autobiographical part of it is um, what happens in the book, which Mm -hmm. is that the mother dies. And that's something that happened to me. And the way that I wrote the book is it was actually based off of some notes that I took while I was going through this. And that was a really important decision as a writer for me to sort of present those experiences as they were. 
because I thought sort of on a, a political or conviction level, it was important to tell the truth about what mm-hmm. I saw. You know, there are parts in the book where I reflect on how cancer is sort of um, spoken about and presented in the media. And what I saw on firsthand was something very different from that. And I think that the truth about what this disease is like in the States particularly, is something that's important to other people that are going through it. It's also important, um, you know, sort of politically. It's kind of a coincidence that uh, this book has come out at this time when we're going through such a massive struggle in the United States about healthcare and particularly mm-hmm. about inequality in healthcare. So to tell that truth, you know, that, um, as I say in the epigraph, that even though the the incident rate across races is the same, black people, black women, as they in the epigraph, it's specifically addressing breast cancer, die from it more. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason for that. And I wanted people to think about that and think about some of the mechanics behind it. So again, from a craft perspective and the way that I constructed the story, I think that's where that uh, feeling of authenticity matters. However, I think uh, when people approach the book from a sort of critical standpoint, I think it's really important that they approach it as literature. And, you know, I'm someone who's also written criticism myself. I teach students how to analyze literature. Um, And I think you get into some kind of uh, sticky places when we read too much of the author into the novel. So, But nonetheless, you have made that decision to write about something that really happened to you Mm -hmm. in, you know, like a major life event. Mm -hmm and about a character that is very similar to you, you could have, A, chosen to write a memoir about what happened to your own mother or a completely fictional novel. So you, mm-hmm. you've made that decision to combine the two. Yeah, I, I did. And, um, you know, the reason... Honestly, it, it didn't really occur to me to write it as a memoir. Mm. And I think this is an important question, too. Um I wanted to express what this experience felt like. Not only, you know to have a parent that uh, you lose to a a very destructive disease, but also, you know, some of the angles of identity. Mm -hmm. And I wanted the freedom to tell that story in whatever way I wanted, which is why I chose fiction. And, you know, if you can kind of imagine where someone is at when that happens, Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's almost like telling the story just straight as it as it happened, is limiting in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, those kind of psychological explorations were really important to me, and some of the things that I explored through characters, that was really important to me. But perhaps counterintuitively, to tell that truth about what happened, the way to do it for me was to do it through fiction. Let's talk about... Well, I want to talk about both Fanny's mother and father, but her mother particularly, who is the like a major presence in the book, like a force of nature, but also obviously uh, you know a massive absence from the book as well, mm-hmm. because the story is about her loss. Tell us about who she is. So the mother character, um, she is a very big, a big character. Um, I, you know, I've been told that she she kind of. Uh, takes over the novel you know she's very interesting and I'm happy about that but she's also important symbolically in a few ways and um, this is where I I drew on my own relationship Mm -hmm. with my mother specifically because um, you know I had always written about my mother from the time I started writing fiction and sometimes in nonfiction as well because we always had a really fraught relationship and I think at some point um, in my 20s not long before she passed away 
Uh, and I think that's when most people kind of come to these realizations mm-hmm. when you are entering adulthood. Uh, I kind of realized that a, a lot of our issues were the result of larger sort of structural forces. So particularly for me, this is where the um, sort of first and second generation immigrant experience really comes in the divide between Mm -hmm. parents who have come to a new country and children who are born there or come there very young and are able to assimilate. It was a very big issue in my family. And also, um, you know, we had an expat community around Mm -hmm. us and I saw you know, similar thing happening with those children. And what happens is, um, specifically in my case, my mother had a a really intense, uh, you know, very violent experience in South Africa that brought a lot of fear in her. And she just, my parents decided to raise us in a very safe, homogenous town. And, um, that in some ways she was still living in the old world in her mind. And, you know, this is where we get like these jokes about, (laughs) you know, um, immigrant parents who still cook all the same food and they don't want to go to the new grocery stores. And, you know, they kind of have these strange customs. And it's surrounded it, by people, expats and people from the old, the old home. Yeah, and there's there's always this tension between the old and the new, and that uh, really infected our relationship. So, um, you know, when I was younger, I thought that these were sort of results of personality, but as I grew up, I realized that, that they were the results of much larger forces, and I wanted to, to explore that. And then, obviously, you know, you must you spent time growing up, as obviously does Thandie in the story. Mm-hmm going back to South Africa, spending time in Johannesburg. I was actually just, in while I was reading your novel, I also read, there's a um, British writer, René Edo-Lodge's book has just come out, which is called uh, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. But more specifically, mm-hmm. I read a sort of response to that by a writer called Busy Alimi, which was on Medium, mm-hmm. uh, which was called uh, Why I'm No Longer Talking to Black Africans about race and his point was and he's a black African. yes he was a, he was he's a he's a second generation american mm-hmm. his point was that when you'd go home and talk to people about what race situation is like in america mm-hmm. they don't get it and they think you're exaggerating and they think you're moaning <laughs> have you experienced that you know for me i always had this disconnect because my family in south africa is colored mm-hmm. they're not black but in America, color does not exist. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And I, I, you know, this comes up in the book mm-hmm. where there's this, the cousins, uh, Tandi's cousins don't really understand when she calls herself black mm-hmm. because that's not who they are there. So for me, that was always the disconnect that I had. It was even like before we could get to those conversations about, I'm assuming they were discussing like police brutality and, you know, structural racism mm-hmm. and segregation and those things. Um, it was difficult to get to that conversation because they didn't understand that I was black mm. over there. So there is a huge divide, and I think a few other writers have explored it also, um, mm-hmm. like uh, an Americana. That's something that Chimamanda Diche explores. The writer Yajiasi wrote um, an op-ed in the New York Times where she said the same thing. Um, although she's not mixed race, Uh, She questioned whether she was black, because in Africa she's not black. Mm -hmm. Everyone is black. They're just people. And then, if I'm maybe interpreting correctly, I think another part of it may be a function of privilege. So, um, perhaps when they were 
these people are having conversations in Africa and they were saying, oh, things are really bad. But from that vantage point, things look very good in America. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very difficult to understand that there's still a lot of oppression mm-hmm. going on there. And that's something that I've kind of struggled with myself and, and knowing how to kind of place and and sort of compare them. But yeah, I think the more that you can kind of acknowledge that there's a real fundamental difference between countries and especially between continents, you can start to kind of speak the same language. But first, you have to acknowledge that there are very big differences between how these issues are treated. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Zinzi Clemens. We're talking about What We Lose, which is her debut novel. And Zinzi, I want to talk about grief and the way that it's portrayed in the book. As we mentioned earlier, the book is written in often very short sections. I hesitate to even call them chapters because often there'll be just one, just a line mm-hmm. or a paragraph. Um, there's also flips backwards and forwards in time as well. It's sort of, I think echoes that sort of dislocation and loneliness that, that one feels when one has lost a, a close relative. And I just wondered if that was that was your aim. Yeah, it was. But, I, you know, when I sat down to write the story, I really didn't know how it was going to turn out. I had no idea what the form would be. So my process was that I started from these vignettes because that was really like writing them in, in really short pieces mm-hmm. felt the most true. Like you said, because, you know, when you're going through grief, you isolate, your thoughts become more disjointed, and you are thinking more associatively than chronologically. Mm -hmm. But as far as how the entire book is structured on a whole, after I wrote those small pieces, I experimented a lot with how they would be ordered, with, like, whether to go back and forth in time, um, how much space I would put between them. All of those things were not clear to me, and I Mm -hmm. just kind of switched things around a lot until I arrived at something that felt good. I still to this day don't know if I've told the story in the best way, but that was as far as I could get it. That was the best I could do. And indeed, apart from a, a, a slight structure, you could imagine it in a different order. You could shuffle it, a yeah. lot of it, and, and read yeah. it in a different order, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I mentioned that there's you've chosen to put photographs the photographs are often, you know, associated with... Because there's a science about politics, both in America and, and South Africa. So the photographs are not necessarily supposed to represent Sandy's memories, but are mm-hmm. just almost like found items that she just decides to put in almost like diary-like. Tell us about mm-hmm. the decision to put diagrams and graphs and photographs in it. Well, I've always done that. I actually... So until college, I, I drew quite a bit, and um, I've also done graphic design and I'm just a visually oriented person so especially I think this is this is also another function of grief a lot of this book is is about what we can say and what we can't say mm-hmm. so part of what I'm trying to say with in terms of grief is that it's 
very much an experience beyond words. And so sometimes it only felt right to include an image um, because I didn't have the mm. right words for it. And to me, that felt true to what was going on in the narrator's life. There's also moments in the book where, well, there's a point in the book where, I think this, I can't remember the actual context of this, but there's a quote where somebody says something about people who are, who are grieving need to be touched. Mm-hmm. And so there are many scenes where um, Thandi indulges in often ill-advised, the best way I can think to describe it is grief sex, is it there? Tell us about it. It's a great description. (laughs) (laughs) Totally accurate. Yeah, um, so I I think that's something also that people who have been through it might recognize. I basically, one of the, the most difficult things about loss is the way in which the world keeps moving even though you don't want it to because the more time goes on the more you forget that person is gone and part of that is that life keeps going and sex is part of life a sex drive is a human thing you cannot stop that from happening and so personally this was another detail that came from life that I found surprising that your sex drive does not stop. And often, like you said, because you do kind of hunger for intimacy, you know, people can become quite reckless um, indulging in grief sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's absolutely a part of it. And I wanted to make sure that that was in there. I wanted to go back to, to your wider writing as well as this novel. And we talked about this idea about you know, the particular cultural position of feeling like slightly like an outsider in mm-hmm. both societies. How does that I mean, that must be something that helps your writing, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, so, you know, I think all writers, or at least all, all writers, all good writers in my opinion, but I don't think it, I'm the only one with this opinion, are, are outsiders in some way. So in order to observe, you have to be physically apart. And outsiderhood can be attained through identity. I think a great example um, that someone actually based out of reading is um, is James Baldwin. And I think the reason why he was such a great observer of um, American life, especially at the time that he was, was that he was not only black, but he was also queer. So he was able to observe things within, you know, the wider culture, but also within blackness very accurately because he was marginalized. So Either it happens through identity or through personality. You know, writers tend to be quieter. Um, They tend to think more before they act. And so I think in my life, that experience that I had of of being an outsider in many different ways is, is what made me predisposed. Because especially when you are, you know, sort of a party of one, the world is a little bit more scary for mm. you. So you don't jump in. You have to think a lot more. And instead of just, you know, that happening with one group, you have to do it all the time. So I'm very used to doing it. And for me personally, that's definitely what, what made me predisposed to this kind of career. Okay, just just one more final thing for me, and then I'll, I'll get you to, to read some if you would. Um, the book's obviously not been out that long, but I wanted to talk about what, the reaction has been to it so far and particularly have you had any reaction from other people who have suffered grief yeah and that's really been like the most rewarding experience um you know whenever i go to arena i've done a few now in the states or even when i've done like some publicity events with you know people that work at publishers I've had at least one person come up to me and say, you know, often with tears in their eyes, you know, I've been through this and this 
they don't always say it helped me. I don't know if that's the right word, but I, I felt a connection to it. And that really makes me very happy as a writer, satisfied. I feel like I, I did my job. You know, that's where that the autobiographical and those authentic parts come in. Is that That's what I wanted. I wanted people to, to see something said in this book that they weren't seeing somewhere else. I think I knew that would be helpful. Can I get you to read this a bit? Sure. We received a pamphlet in the mail called What We Lose, a Support Guide, published by the hospice. It had tips on what foods to eat, the constant exhortations to exercise, the expected warnings against caffeine and alcohol, and one page had this glossary of terms. Grief is a response to loss. It is a process describing how one feels and thinks. Mourning describes how a person expresses their loss. Bereavement is the event of loss. It is also a change in status, when a husband loses his wife and becomes a widower, or a child loses a parent and becomes an orphan. I lingered on that word, orphan. An orphan was always a person without parents, without roots. I had one parent, and one was not none. Orphan, noun, a young animal that has lost its mother, one deprived of some protection or advantage, such as orphans of the storm, a child deprived by death of one or usually both parents. But the condition isn't mathematical. The loss is what creates the condition. It's not the fact of one parent, but that the loss has occurred. It's the wound, not the parts that are left untouched. So I've been talking to Zinzi Clemens. We've been talking about her debut novel, What We Lose, which is out now in the UK from Flawthy State. Zinzi, it's been a pleasure talking to you about it. It's been a pleasure talking to you too. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.